from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why sustainable tourism is a journey, not a destination. The fate of multinationals in a nativist world. Hawaii's winding road to 100% renewables and why your next bus ride may someday be a beamer. It's a beautiful day and we're putting the top down this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's June 16th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and uh, in L.A. is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? Good. What's going on in SoCal this week? I am in route back from a few weeks in Mexico, brushing up on Spanish. Um, can't help but the reporter in me. I was busy asking people questions about how do you guys think about renewable energy and all of these things? And they're just like, who is this weird outsider? But now back on, on home turf. So you were down there for several weeks, right? Yeah, I was down there for a total of three three weeks in Oaxaca. Beautiful city, lots of really good food, good drink. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough. And what was this course you were doing? What was that all about? Yeah, so this was six hours a day of Spanish class. I have your sort of typical, took a few years of Spanish in high school, but never really learned to speak it. And I can't say that I am fluent after three weeks, but definitely much better. Learned those important words with double entendres that you want to be careful of, <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. So it's not just donde esta la biblioteca. <laughs> exactly. Going above and beyond. Yeah, that's great. And uh, did you come away with, a, with uh, the kind of level of fluency that you wanted? Much better. I learned, uh, yeah, some, some stuff that's relevant for work, how to ask people questions about the environment, about housing, things that a reporter sort of needs, which is great. Um, but planting, you know, keep it up. I think there's, it, it, it was nice to sort of flex a different muscle in the brain and, and learn some new, new language stuff. So that was, that was cool. But I know um, while we're on the topic of, of travel, you guys are neck deep getting ready for our, our Verge Hawaii event, right? Neck deep would be a good thing, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, so uh, next Tuesday uh, starts uh, Verge Hawaii. I'll be heading there this weekend to uh, uh, Oahu and uh, Waikiki and Honolulu, and uh, yeah, it's looking like a really good week. Like we're going to have a, a great event. And I know we have a couple of stories this week on topics related to Hawaii. So let's go ahead and jump right into the week in review. So when you think about sustainability in an island context, one topic that is sure to come up is the role of sustainable tourism. So our editorial director, Heather Clancy, took a look at what's going on in Hawaii with her piece, The Long and Winding Road to Sustainable Tourism. She looked at what big hotel brands like Hilton are doing, both on islands and on the mainland. Uh, one example would be in New York, where you've got uh, a 58-room project called the Hotel Skylar Syracuse that's going for LEED Platinum Green Building Certification. So some of sort of the, the green building things we've been hearing about. But in an island context, 
Um, she pointed out that you're more likely to get questions about water use, uh, the things that you see, the little placards in the rooms for all the time about washing sheets and towels um, and how much more important it is to minimize that environmental footprint in the, the global context for islands. And to put that in an economic context, the tourism industry generated a total of roughly $7.6 trillion, trillion with a T, in revenue in 2016, or about 10.2% of the world's gross domestic product, according to the World Travel and Tourism Council. Yeah, it's a big footprint. And in Hawaii, it's the biggest footprint. And what's interesting, and part of the context for why uh, we Heather ran this piece uh, this week is that Next week, as part of our Verge event in Honolulu, we're going to be running a sustainable tourism summit looking at how to accelerate sustainable tourism in Hawaii and beyond. And I think it's interesting that the tourism industry in Hawaii, which is the biggest part of the economy, isn't fully bought into things like renewable energy. The state has a commitment to be 100% renewably powered uh, by 2045. And uh, getting the tourism industry to really understand and connect the proverbial dots between sustainability and tourism. I mean, at one level, you think it's obvious if it's not, if the landscape and environment is, is despoiled, then there goes the tourism industry. But it's not always that obvious. And particularly if you have this tropical paradise that's been around for hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of years, and people are, are doing you know, reasonably well on it. What do they need to do differently? So we're going to explore that um, in terms of thinking about this, you know, how do they protect the commons, as it's called, their, the lifeblood of their business, looking at some of the sustainability goals, measures, indicators, and, and the food and water management, and how to work with local economies and respecting not just sensitive ecosystems, but local culture. And then, of course, how all that relates to climate change, both the leadership part, but also, you know, an island anywhere in the world these days um, is is subject to climate change and rising sea levels. And by the way, before I, I shut up, I think it's interesting that it's this is not just uh, a thing in, in the Pacific or in even in other parts off of the, in the Mediterranean. But just the other day, this week, President Trump made a call to uh, a crab fisherman, uh, I guess they're called crabbers, in the Chesapeake Bay, because there was the CNN aired a story about Tangier, Virginia, which is a uh, sits on Tangier Island, about 12 miles uh, from both the Virginia and Maryland coast in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. It's a little one and a little over a square mile, and it shrinks by 15 feet each year, according to the Army Corps of Engineers, and it's eroding as sea level is rising. So this is starting to hit home. And for some reason, President Trump, uh, you know, was concerned about this, even though he's not apparently concerned that much about climate change. So uh, maybe it's the bread part of a, of a purple state or something that in any case, at least he, he made um, some effort there or claimed to uh, be concerned. And, uh, but the point of all this is that this is hitting home increasingly islands in the United States, of course, of which Hawaii is, is very much a part, as well as all around the world. Right. And there is one really great example in terms of solutions in, in Hawaii. Um, a famous property, Turtle Bay on the North Shore in Oahu, 
is actually the first resort on the island. It was the first resort on the island to invest in rooftop solar, but they're also looking at some interesting materials arrangements where they still allow styrofoam and related materials on the premises, but they're stored in dumpsters that are then collected by a local organization called Waste to Waves, which turns the material into surfboards. So sort of a, a circular economy example and one that I'm, I'm sure we'll see some interesting variations on. Well, sounds like they've caught a wave, but let's move on to another story we ran this week, which is part of Bob Langert, our editor-at-large and former head of sustainability at McDonald's, uh, a series that he's been doing called 10 Minutes With, where he uh, talks to a really diverse group of corporate and NGO and 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 other people in sustainability, just you know, gets a little bit inside who they are and what they do, and it's a kind of a fun and often um, a little bit irreverent conversation. This uh, week he did one with uh, Tom Murray, an old friend of mine who runs the uh, business program at Environmental Defense Fund, aka EDF. Uh, They recently rebranded from the Corporate Partnerships Program. It's now called EDF Plus Business, uh, and it's intended the way the, the way reflect the way that they've uh, worked for now uh, almost 30 years. Um, are you familiar I mean, with sort of the legacy, Lauren, of EDF and McDonald's? It's funny timing. I was just talking to one of our 30 under 30 honorees is with EDF plus business, Jake Hiller. Um, and, and he was telling me a little bit about that, but it sounds like there's just sort of such a broad scope of issues and, and companies they're working with. Well, I, the McDonald's thing is really, um, I think, iconic because of when it happened, what happened, and to some extent what's happened since. Um, this was back in the, in the 1980s, the late 80s, um, way back when, before a lot of you know, companies were paying attention to this, and McDonald's uh, big pain point actually was litter, just the trash that was being left around with from you know, Big Mac, Big Mac uh, um, clamshell, styrofoam clamshells and wrappers and, and cups and everything else. And that's what they were being attacked on as much as anything else. And so they brought in Environmental Defense Fund. Now, at the time, big companies, let alone a, you know what would certainly be considered at the time a big bad company called, like McDonald's, did not party well with the sort of NGO crowd. But they set up this program where they invited EDF in and they had... Um, Rich Dennison and Jackie Prince Roberts, people who are still part of the organization or in that orbit, certainly still in sustainability. Um, some of them have moved on. Uh, brought him into the company. They actually had him working behind the counter, flipping burgers to really understand the operation. And that came up with a series of, of, of uh, recommendations about cutting waste. It turns out most of the waste wasn't, despite all those clamshells and straws and cups, the, the biggest waste problems were things behind the counter, the things customers don't even see. They came up with a set of recommendations. McDonald's realized we're onto something here. We're saving tons of money. We're improving our reputation. They built on that and added many, many dozens of more other initiatives. And by the way, this was all Bob Langert's doing. Um, and for years, and to some extent still today, almost 30 years later, McDonald's EDF is still held up as sort of one of the iconic relationships, partnerships between the nonprofit and corporate worlds. Um, it's in some ways it's it's a little bit unfortunate that it, that we haven't moved a lot past that. Although there are a lot more corporate partnerships with NGOs these days, but that that's still held up as the gold standard is really remarkable. 
yeah, that's one of a few really interesting examples in the piece. So I would highly recommend checking that out and we'll link to it in the show notes. But another interesting corporate partnership of a different variety, this one involved an auto giant, BMW, investing in an electric bus startup, Proterra, was the subject of another piece this week by, by our editorial director, Heather Clancy. Proterra is a company we've been following for a few years now. They're based in Silicon Valley and have been looking at how you break into the very lucrative and very large market for public buses with electric solutions. Um, and this week, they announced that they've received a substantial funding round, a $55 million cash infusion uh, led by Al Gore's investment firm, actually, and the corporate venture arm of BMW. So the goal here is to fuel Proterra's investments in additional manufacturing capacity. They build their buses in L.A. and South Carolina. Um, and it's actually a 13-year-old company that seems to be at an interesting moment where we're hearing more about large-scale electrification and sort of how that translates to this market for heavy-duty vehicles like buses. Yeah, it's a really interesting company, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Matt Horton, the chief commercial officer at Proterra, who will be uh, speaking at Virtuai next week. But one of the interesting things about them is that as American City transit districts are upgrading their buses and, and trying to sync up with the uh, climate and electrification goals and, and carbon reduction goals, and also have made in the USA procurement mandates, or at least preference, Proterra is kind of sitting there by themselves. Yeah, there's a Chinese company, BYD, that makes a bus. Then they have a plant in the United States somewhere. I don't know where. And so they're, they're the, really the competitor here. But my understanding is that they don't have quite the range. It's not quite as good. And they haven't been in the market quite as long as Proterra. So this is a place where, where a company really has positioned themselves with a, a competitive advantage. And it's, I'm not surprised at all given the, the, the market for buses and the, the market for electrification, that uh, Al Gore, BMW, and others are, are rushing to their side, get on board. Right. It'll be interesting to see how the automakers choose to get involved in this space, because you've also got companies like Volvo and uh, Mercedes-Benz parent company Daimler that are very active in the electric truck space. So how that technology might carry over is interesting. But in terms of the size of the market we're talking about with electric buses, Navigant Research estimates that development should drive sales from around 119,000 electric buses in 2016 to more like 181,000 in 2026. So I don't know. Keep an eye out on a road near you. Yeah, that's a, that's a bus you don't want to miss. <laughs> Well, switching gears, uh, finally this week, uh, we had a piece by Alan White, who's uh, vice president and senior fellow at the TELUS Institute, and one of the true pioneers in, in the field of corporate sustainability, having been at the beginning of groups like Ceres and the Global Reporting Initiative and Corporation 2020, really, really thoughtful on this, wrote a piece for us the fate of global corporations in an anti-globalist world. Uh, basically, how do MNCs, multinational corporations, survive in a world where we're looking more at nativist, closed systems, reeling back in of, of, of trade, where these companies were really built on the opposite of that, which are open barriers and borders and the free flow of technology, talent, and capital. 
And, and what does this have to do with uh, sustainability in terms of how we sort of meet and, and exceed a lot of the goals that uh, we have, the sustainable development goals and, and others? Really interesting piece. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about it. So I rang him up uh, this week and first of all asked him, why did he write this piece? Well, I live in two worlds. I live in a world where, for years, I've been thinking about the purpose of the corporation, responsible business, and global business. My other world is more visionary and more holistic, shall we say, what we call here at TELUS Institute the great transition. We've been at this 20 years. I've been part of a team developing scenarios of the future futures that are conventional, we call it market forces, futures that are dark, that we call barbarization, breakdown, fortress world futures, and finally great transition futures. As I've looked at the world uh, in, in its current condition, looking at the business side on the one hand and the broader global trajectory on the other, I observed what many have observed, which is an increasingly clash of trajectories. And that clash has given rise to deep questions about the future of global business. In an age of populism, protectionism, xenophobia, how is a global company going to confront and react to these forces when their entire enterprise is built on the fundamental fundamental concepts of openness, fluid markets, transnational capital, transnational talent, and so forth. So there's a clash here of those that are looking inward, protectionist and nationalistic, and those in the business community who thrive on exactly the opposite. How are we going to reconcile that? So you offer some strategies for success, and one of those is one that you've been a part of for a long time, a collective action on the part of multinational corporations. Uh, you've helped found Ceres and Global Reporting Initiative and a, uh, a number of other initiatives where companies are coming together to collectively try to transform how they operate and how they talk about how they operate and transparency and everything else. How would you assess how those, those efforts are going in terms of is the kind of collection action that you've been a part of or that you're seeing elsewhere really moving the needle? Well, I look back at 25 years of this kind of work, collaborative work, coalition building among business and their stakeholders. And I, I reflect, uh, I, I look at it with a sense of, of satisfaction, not complete fulfillment, but certainly you use the term moving the needle. The needle's at a different place than it was in late 80s, early 90s, when I started this business. It's simply the discussion is different. Uh, attitudes have changed. Expectations have changed dramatically, whether it's transparency, responsibility, sustainability, sustainable business. Uh, it definitely has changed. We're in a different world 25 years later. The question is, is that world going to be, and is that progress going to be adequate for what is now an increasing, a world of increasingly what we call rolling crises, crises of disparities, crises of social instability and uh, breakdown, crises of failed states, of which there are now, depending on how you count, 10 to 20 in the world. 
from Venezuela to Yemen to uh, Syria, of course, and so forth. So we're at a different point than we were in the rather by, in retrospect, the timid 90s gave way to the enlightened 2000s. But now, in the recent years, last three, four, five particularly, we seem to be at an inflection point where that trajectory, as gradual as it was, and as hopeful as it was, is confronting a wall, a wall of uncertainty that certainly challenges and undermines those of us who have sought uh, to build coalitions and collective action in a positive way. Those are under stress. I think the next chapter, briefly, when we talk about collective action now in the business community, we have to give it a different coloration. We need a new chapter. Continue what we've done, whether it's for transparency, discussions around corporate purpose, uh, responsible investment and in attracting and interacting with the responsible investors. Responsible companies need responsible investors. We need to open a new horizon on what collective action means. And that means collective action of the kind we've started to see already uh, among some of the tech companies pushing back on immigration controls in, this, in the United States. Collective action, hundreds of companies stepping up and say, yes, the climate agreement rejecting those skeptics, and of course in the U.S., one major skeptic, our president, and taking a more proactive and I dare say political stance that has not been particularly uh, present in earlier ventures, certainly not the ones I've been involved with. So are you hopeful that this kind of thing will gain steam and, and end up with the kind of change we need at the scale, scope, and speed that's required? I'm guardedly hopeful. Uh, I, I think that the sense of a looming crisis, uh, not looming, but really more, more immediate each day, uh, with the turmoil, the uncertainty in the world, it's a climate that any intelligent business, uh, global business person understands cannot sustain prosperous business. Business cannot operate, global business cannot operate when it doesn't know the next day whether its operations in this or that country are going to be undermined by civil war, instability, revolution, whatever it happens to be, or undermined by sudden aggressive protectionism where supply chains are disrupted, talent is closed out of the borders, and so forth. Uh, a global company cannot operate under those circumstances. What are the options? Well, one option is collective action. Business is powerful. Some would say too powerful. But power can be exercised for the public benefit and for the corporate benefit in ways that uh, are really the urgency of the day. And that is the kind of collective action, learning from the past with these uh, earlier projects. You mentioned Global Reporting Initiative, Corporation 2020 series. These are all valid, valuable projects, but they're not enough to uh, reverse the tide of, uh, of the populist tide that is threatening uh, the next 10, 20 years of global corporations. Alan White is Vice President and Senior Fellow of the TELUS Institute. Thanks so much for talking to us, Alan. My pleasure, Joel, as always. Thank you. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? 
who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. Well, Lauren, as we've made perfectly clear, we're headed to Hawaii next week. And one of the really interesting storylines here is, is how the state of Hawaii is part of this growing group of islands that, that have ambitions, or in, in case of Hawaii, a mandate to go fossil fuel-free and transition to 100% renewable energy. You wrote a piece about this this week. What's going on here? Yes, you're right. So this is a story that actually goes beyond Hawaii with islands in the European Union, Asia, the Caribbean, Australia, really sort of all over the map, thinking about ways to get away from their expensive dependence on imported oil and gas. Um, But what I realized in in writing this piece, the headline was fossil-free islands, a blueprint for sustainable development. Um, And what really sort of emerged was the fact that islands, which can serve as sort of a petri dish for experimenting with smaller scale renewable power because of their smaller populations, are in in a lot of ways a good litmus test for some of the much bigger sustainable development challenges we're hearing about around the world. Um, So the island of Molokai in Hawaii, which is home to about 7,300 people, is a really interesting example of this. Uh, You've had Community groups like Sustainable Molokai were working for years on energy efficiency upgrades and talking about the potential of models like community-owned solar that really would put social equity front and center uh, in a place that's dealt with a lot of friction, frankly, over the years between indigenous groups and outsiders coming in. So I spoke with Amelia Nordek, who is the Director of Renewable Resources for Sustainable Molokai, to talk a little bit more about where this push came from and how it's evolved. I do have um, a background in sustainable building, and when I worked for Habitat for Humanity on Molokai, I built the first two off-grid homes for Habitat International here on Molokai. So, you know, energy efficiencies and the way that you use energy is a big part of what you need to look at in affordable housing, right? Because it's the hidden cost of housing. And especially on an island such as Molokai, the price got up to, I think, 49 cents a kilowatt hour in the last 10 years. Now we're at the lowest. It's been since I've been here in 11 years at about 36 cents a kilowatt hour for residential usage. So it's still the highest in the nation. So it's always something to consider. So when I started to work outside of um, affordable housing and co-founded Sustainable Molokai, uh, energy just became the obvious choice to like move forward with our four columns. We do energy, agriculture, conservation, and economic development. The other thing that's going on here, Lauren, is that this could be a real game changer in terms of what happens when governments like the state of Hawaii, which has this renewable portfolio standard to get to 100%, when they start uh, working with local utilities and, and others on the island to to you know, bring the ecosystem together to make things happen. How is that playing out in the case of Molokai? That's definitely one of the key dynamics to keep an eye on here. So in Molokai, Nordic said they've been campaigning since 2008 to get the state's utility, Hawaiian Electric, to set a localized 100% renewable energy goal. And that actually happened last year when the utility, uh, which is known locally as HECO, set a goal of making Molokai 100% renewable by 2020. So the question then, now that we've got as a sort of like the broader question in Hawaii right now is how you go from these mandates or these goals to actually making it happen. 
And from community groups point of view, the question is whether three years is enough time to plan and build out infrastructure that really addresses some of the underlying problems of, of grid 1.0, where there was sort of a lack of community ownership, utility bills could be really high. Um, so here's what Nordic of Sustainable Molokai had to say about both the challenges and opportunities of collaboration in this space. So really what we're looking at was to create our proactive instead of a reactive model for how communities decide where they want to go with their sustainability and economic development. And and I think Hawaii especially and other other places in the Pacific have more been like outside in development where the development has been forced on the community and the community then has either a choice to react or not to react to that. You have to start with building your community and building the capacity within the community because the technology is here. The technology is only getting better and the financing is going to be, I think, really available. People want to fund projects that have a social enterprise design to them. I think that is really what people are looking to do right now. And so I think it's very important to look at how we can you know, combine, you know, we're at this perfect moment um, where we need to do this because of climate change. And we want to do this because of all the policy that we set into play. One of the things that struck me about this, Lauren, is that, uh, of course, you need partnerships, uh, lots of players coming together. But one of the interesting partners in all this is the U.S. military, which has a pretty big presence in Hawaii and in the, in the Pacific in, in general. Uh, talk a little bit about that. That's a very interesting area. So the U.S. Army Reserves, for instance, are working both within Hawaii uh, on the island of Maui and on surrounding islands with a large military presence like American Samoa and Saipan on what they've started to call net zero roadmaps for uh, adapting their installations. And they're actually doing this independently of the state, given that the Army is obviously a federal body. I spoke with Christina Vicari, who's a consultant focused on energy management for the Army Reserves. And she said that this really first stems from a goal of being more cost effective about energy consumption. Again, given those really high oil costs on islands, it, it's more effective for them to look at solar PV, obvious, stating the obvious, but these are sunny places. Um, but she said that, interestingly, the ideas behind why the military might invest in some of this renewable technology are shifting to more thinking about mission security and resilience themes, Joel, you obviously know about um, and also looking to shore up other facets of military operations like water conservation, limiting waste, and sort of really thinking about slimming down their footprint on islands. Yeah. And as you said before, this is a global phenomenon. In fact, there was recently, uh, I think maybe last year, earlier this year, was a, a smart islands initiative that brings together um, islands off the coasts of uh, Italy, France, uh, Crete, uh, Greece, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we, we pull this together? So this, this really is a global phenomenon. Definitely. So that group, the, the Smarter Islands Initiative, has been producing a lot of research in the space. They're very focused on the European Union. And Molokai, the island in Hawaii, is involved with another nascent sort of knowledge sharing group that they call the Tentu Project. Tentu means ladybug. 
Um, and the aim is to replicate the success of islands like Samso, Denmark, which has already gone 100% renewable. It's now a carbon neutral island up in the North Sea. Um, I spoke with Nordic of Sustainable Molokai about how islands are looking to, to share what they've learned. came across um, a study of Samso Island in Denmark that had been 100% renewable since about 1998. It's amazing. You know, what's so amazing is you ask people about it and they just kind of shrug their shoulders. It's like no big deal. It's like, uh-huh, yep. The whole culture was really well thought out and the community was engaged um, from the beginning to the end. So that's what drew me to to Samso. And, and then I started having a conversation with Soren Hemerson, who was the mayor of Samso at the time. And now he had the Energy Academy, which kind of grew out of this idea of of wanting to educate other people about um, what they had done because people kept showing up how did you do this? Tell us how you did this. So, um, so they started to arrange a space where people could come and learn. And one of our, so our partners, we have this project. It's called the Tento Project, and um, we're partners with Japan, Samso, the European Union, which has about 200 European Union islands. Australia, and then, of course, Molokai, and hopefully other places in Hawaii. The goal is to grow the network, to continually, you know, reach out and connect with communities that want to develop community-owned renewable energy projects. As I think we've made crystal clear on this podcast, next week is Verge Hawaii. We'll be packing up the company and heading halfway across the Pacific to Honolulu for a three-day event that brings together a really interesting group of locals and non-locals to talk about what's going on in Hawaii in terms of its energy mandate and so many other things as it moves to make a clean energy economy. And here to talk about it next week, I've asked Verge Program Director Elaine Shea to step into Green Biz Studio to talk a little bit about that. Welcome, Elaine. Hi, Joel. Nice to be here. So just for a little context setting, why are we doing this event in Hawaii, of all places, to begin with? Good question. So the history is that the Hawaii State Energy Office, so basically the state of Hawaii, the government, um, they have this annual conference called the Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit. And they've been holding this for a while now. And, uh, you know, last year they we took over uh, their Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit under the name Verge Hawaii. They actually invited us to take our Verge event platform and help them figure out some steps and what are the solutions to achieve their 100% renewable electricity by 2045 mandate. The state has a goal to hit 100% renewable energy for uh, the grid and I think some fuels as well uh, by 2045. And, and so how hard is that to do that? Talk a little bit about what's been going on in Hawaii uh, and just what that process is like to try and hit that ambitious goal. It's been really challenging. So, you know, on the surface, it's really easy to say, hey, we should be 100% renewables by 2045. There's a reason why Hawaii is the only state that is aggressively pursuing that right now. I know that there are other states right now considering it. But 
basically last year, the governor of Hawaii, Governor Ige, he signed this mandate. And so last year's event at Virtual Hawaii, we were really exploring, like, what does that actually mean in the first year? Since then, there have been a number of things that have happened. Well, there's no uh, acquisition activity. There was some rumblings last year about uh, Next Era kind of uh, taking over the Hawaiian Electric Company, which is their major utility. Um, but that's gone away. So now in the second year, what we're really exploring is how do you actually do this? How do you stop talking about what needs to be done and start putting this into action? And that's a really challenging thing. Well, who are some of the players? Because it seems like this does take a village, and I know that we're going to be bringing that village to Virgil. Talk a little bit about sort of that ecosystem. Right. So, I mean, you've got your utilities, your regulators, your legislators, your stakeholders. So in Hawaii, it's very specific in that it's not only just an island. There are a lot of rural communities. And there are also a lot of people who contribute a lot to energy consumption and production. The number one consumer and producer or consumer of energy is the tourism industry. Um, that's something that we're really addressing this year significantly, especially because a lot of people in the tourism industry, hospitality and transportation and airlines, etc., they're not necessarily involved with this state mandate in terms of renewables, and they're really not as involved in a lot of the energy activities in general. They may do some conservation things, but they're not really connecting the dots. In addition, the military is also a very large consumer in um, Hawaii as well of energy, and they're also a producer. So there is military presence there as well. So we're doing a, a sustainable tourism summit on uh, Wednesday of next week, a, a half-day event, uh, bringing together a group of uh, 60 or so key players in the tourism industry to sort of help explore this. But how about the military? We're going to have a number of uh, top brass there. Yeah, absolutely. So people from the Navy, from the Pacific Command, which is based in Honolulu, um, that's the entire Pacific region of the military. Um, also, Air, Army, Air Force, National Guard, Marine Corps, etc. They're doing some really innovative stuff under the umbrella of resilience and energy security and energy independence. So what are we hoping will happen as a result of Virtual Hawaii this year? Do, do, is this about showing progress or just getting things going, or what, what, what do you, how would you describe a happy outcome from next week? Well, I think that right now the state is dealing with significant challenges across a number of different facets. So, you know, there are a lot of questions about what is the future regulatory and utility business model look like? Because right now, you know, you're dealing with a system that wasn't supposed to transform this quickly. And because they have this, you know, momentum toward needing to achieve this mandate, they're starting to understand the interdependency, so decarbonizing transportation, changing their incentives so that they're more aligned, bringing up more disenfranchised groups. So talking about equity and justice in addition to, you know, with indigenous communities, etc. Um, there are also other things like, you know, how are you going to, what are you supposed to invest in from a capital standpoint to unleash more innovation? Right now, there isn't a lot of data that's just openly accessible right now for technology vendors. So there's so many things that we need to dig into really significantly. And we also need to help people connect the dots around what their actions are, not just from an energy standpoint, but how that plays into climate change and a number of other aspects. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and it's not just uh, limited to the, the island state. Uh, a lot of what's going on there is not only relevant to other islands, but also to uh, Asia, to, uh, to the United States. And so as goes Hawaii, so goes the nation. Elaine Shea, Verge Program Director, uh, thanks for stopping by. I'll see you in Waikiki. <laughs> Mahalo.
So last week we told you about our new class of the Green Biz 30 Under 30. And this week we wanted to let you hear a little more from them directly. So we picked three honorees in our class of 2017 with very different areas of focus. First up is Ryan Bradley of Lexamark, who's thinking first and foremost about the circular economy. The one thing that really drew me to it is that, you know, I think we need to lead the sustainability story by showing businesses, corporations, the actual economic benefit behind it. That's going to really get them on board and really it's going to catapult, I think, the entire idea forward. And I think that's where circular economy comes into play. I have two patents with Lexmark, and um, I got those pretty early. I was I was actually still a grad student when I got awarded those patents. It was just an innovative way to excel something that was, you know, a lot of people seem as archaic as uh, in a printer, um, and actually stepping it forward into the period of analytics, the Internet of Things, and using data and machine learning to to make it more efficient and to reduce costs and also reduce waste. There's a win-win-win there. There's a win-win-win for the customer, the company, and the environment. A lot of people look at sustainability and say, okay, yeah, I'm just, so I'm sustainable because I recycle. And that's the furthest thing from the case is that, you know, we really need to innovate um, to look at different methods for uh, getting material back and just recycling because we – from a sustainability perspective, we, we can't subject our businesses to higher cost recycling just for the case. So, I mean, just because it doesn't exist right now that we can't recycle some materials economically, it doesn't mean that it can't be. So, I would say that definitely innovation is always key into overcoming a barrier in any case. I really want to accelerate the circular economy model from an engineering perspective and really merge the world of circular economy, data science, to really look at improving efficiencies within society in general, looking at the environmental economic benefits that that can bring. Here's Sarah Robinson of the Emerald Cities Collective looking at economic inclusion and sustainable cities. When I was a kid, I had terrible allergies. I, I was a bit of a bubble kid. So I was allergic to dust. I was allergic to pollen. So it made me very aware of my built, like the built environment. And I used to volunteer at a camp called Fresh Air Camp. And it would be kids who had upper respiratory um, infections or using trachs and immobile. So it just really made me aware of my surroundings and air quality as well as just sustainability as a whole. I remember at nine, it was like, I want to build healthy homes. I wanted to build healthy spaces, although I did not really understand what that meant. So as I got older and I went to school for engineering, for biomedical engineering, um, and wanted to kind of focus on that health aspect and people, and from there, it was like I learned more about the U.S. Green Building Council and about the LEED certification and just about buildings in general and how the industry was merging health and buildings. And it was just really becoming a, a, a conversation internationally. And finally, here's Lizzie Horvitz of Unilever on why sustainability should be a strategic priority. Since 16, I sort of knew I wanted my focus to be on environmental studies, but didn't know 
how to have the biggest impact. So I spent two and a half years after college in the nonprofit sector. And there I sort of a light bulb came off, switched, and I realized I wanted to be more on the proactive side instead of the reactive side. Um, And I just think the private sector has the biggest potential to change the world, either for good or for bad. And so I wanted to be on the positive side of that. I focused my job search on job titles without the word sustainability in it because I had spent three years studying corporate social responsibility and climate mitigation through the private sector. And, you know, I knew what it meant to cut carbon footprint in half and how to measure a business on their sustainability initiatives. But once you start talking about how that's implemented on the ground, you know, whether it's taking half the trucks off of the road or switching a manufacturing plant to renewable energy, I didn't have the first clue how that would happen. And so Unilever was sort of this perfect combination of that where I could be on the ground in supply chain, but also you have this incredible sustainability team who have these far-reaching goals. I think the most important thing in this field is to work with people who come from different backgrounds and to be able to connect with them on levels that they understand um, because this is a niche field and not everybody's going to get on board with um, just doing it for the good. And so um, I feel lucky that a lot of the decisions I make in my role also come with cost savings. So, you know, you don't always have to make the case, but that's not always the situation. And I've really enjoyed that, actually, being able to find a way to connect with people who come from totally different places. For instance, I have a colleague in my office who has been at Unilever since 1985. He worked his way up from working on the factory floor, and he knows more about Unilever supply chain than I'll ever dream of knowing. And that just like keeps me going to work every day to be able to meet these people and hear their stories and try to connect with them so that we can all get to a common goal together. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories, links, and events we mentioned in this episode. Thanks to podcaster director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments. And we'll see you back here next week from the Aloha State for a special Verge edition of GreenBiz 350. In the meantime, please be sure to register for the Verge virtual live stream, whether you listen live or on demand, and you can catch all the main stage action from Honolulu. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.